Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. If you can make sure that your medical device that you're designing and developing and manufacturing, if you can make sure that that product was safe and effective, wouldn't you do so? Isn't that our obligation in the medical device industry? Don't we have a responsibility to make sure that the products that we're designing and developing and manufacturing are safe and effective for their indications and intended uses? I think that that is, we would all agree that that is absolutely the purpose But something has happened recently where maybe we're not doing everything that we need to do. It really has surfaced with respect to reusable products, things that need to be reprocessed and cleaned in between uses. There obviously has been a lot of press, a lot of news about that. And today on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, familiar guest Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talk about how these dirty devices are impacting actually policy and and guidance documents coming from the FDA that are now going to trickle down and affect many, many of us in the medical device industry. So be sure to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and welcome to another episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about something that is suddenly now impacting a lot of medical device companies around the world. And you know what? These medical device companies may not even realize that this is happening. My guest today is Mike Drews. Mike Drews is with Vascular Sciences, and he consults with FDA, Health Canada, as well as medical device companies all over the world, from coast to coast, from continent to continent. Mike, welcome back to the program today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to come back, John. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Mike, you're welcome. Absolutely. Uh, I love our conversations. We sometimes get get pretty deep, and, and today is a, another one of those topics that is certainly possible. And I'm going to remind the audience that a few months ago, you and I had a conversation about reprocessing of devices. There were some issues with some duodenoscopes in the marketplace and, and some superbugs that had... Uh, cropped up at a couple major medical institutions and uh, a big you know hubbub that was happening in the industry about reprocessing. So obviously that that topic hasn't gone away. So I'm sure you're staying on top of of reprocessing and and this issue about uh, quote superbugs and dirty devices and all that sort of thing. So what is the uh, the latest and greatest from your perspective? Well, first of all, John, just to recap the situation for your audience, for anyone that either may not remember or hadn't heard, but much of this stemmed from the tragedy that happened just this past year at UCLA, as well as several other medical institutions, where several people were infected and seriously impacted by infections caused by a certain type of endoscope, as you said, a duodenoscope that were not cleaned and reprocessed properly. So that's the the topic of our conversation today. 
And, you know, this has generated a, a, an awful lot of discussion in the medical device world. Since then, in the interest of full disclosure, I was one of several people that were invited to present at the panel meeting at FDA on this topic just last year. And maybe we can get into some of those issues today. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> absolutely. I, I'm sure we'll talk about that. I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about not only that panel discussion, but also the outcome of that. But it's always interesting to me whenever you see headlines in the news about Congress wanting to jump in and, and make t- take some action that uh, impacts the medical device industry. And, you know, sometimes there are these events and it's certainly tragic and certainly there needs to be some sort of action taken, of course. But now all of a sudden, you know, when it becomes national news and headline news and Congress is getting involved, what, how does that impact all the rest of us, all the rest of these companies who may be doing the right thing? You know, what does that mean? How does that impact us? Well, that's a terrific question, John. And, you know, quite frankly, one of the things that bothers me about some folks in this industry, a number of people have, have said to me, well, I don't work in gastroenterology or I don't work on duodenoscopes. Why should I care about this particular case? And quite frankly, as we're going to talk about, everybody in the medical device industry should be aware of this because... This is now one of those small number of medical device cases that are truly a watershed moment because it is reaching out and impacting every medical device in this industry. Certainly all the devices that are being labeled for reusability or reprocessing. And unfortunately, you know, back to your comment a moment ago about the impact, these are not new issues. We've been talking about these issues since actually the early 1990s. Unfortunately, It sometimes takes bodies to pile up on the side of the road before anybody, including our industry or Congress, starts to pay attention. Right. So simply put, one of the changes that has happened since this tragedy is that now every single medical device that is being labeled for reusability and reprocessing is now required as part of the 510K or PMA or whatever kind of submission to have validated cleaning protocols and and so on. So, you know, that is certainly a good thing, but I think we should have been doing that a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you and I have talked uh, both on podcasts and uh, just on one-on-one conversations in the past about the, the, the premise behind design and development, design controls, and just being prudent engineering. And, and I think this is certainly a case if you know that your product and you label your product to be reused, reprocessed, over and over again, that those are certainly things that should be captured as user needs. Those are certainly things that you should define with specific design inputs, and you should definitely be verifying and validating those things as well. I agree. And one of the things that I would love to hear your opinion on, John, I know that you and your audience are you know, very into the design controls, and some people have suggested that we need new regulation to prevent these kinds of problems from happening. But some people would argue that we already have that regulation in the design controls. As you and your audience are well aware, one of the underlining tenets of the design controls is to make sure that you meet the needs of your intended user. Well, who is your user? Most people think of it as the physician or surgeon. But if your device is specifically labeled to be reused and reprocessed, is not one of your users the actual reprocessor? And if so, you know, isn't that already included in our in our current regulation? What do you think, John? <laughs> yeah, I, I do a lot of, uh, we'll say, coaching and teaching, uh, especially companies that are very, very new to the medical device process and product development efforts. 
and going many times going through their first medical device product development process ever trying to trying to bring a, a novel technology to the market and we we usually pause and and spend a lot of time when we're talking about design inputs and you know i think it's the fda design control guidance document that that even comes out and says that you should spend something like 30% of your product development timeline focusing on your design inputs and a lot of people you know it's you know how this goes everybody's trying to hurry up hurry up hurry up check the boxes get the document move to the next phase and and so on and so forth and i think you know, when you get to design inputs, that's one of those areas where I tell people, hey, we need to we need to take our time. We need to get this right. And we need to think of all, and I'll use all with underline and capital letters, we need to think of all the design inputs that uh, can impact this particular product, all the requirements, basically. And, and you raise a, an excellent point. If I know that my end user uh, is certainly the physician, certainly the patient, but sometimes we forget about all these other end users. Like, what about the nurse who's bringing the, the product to the physician to use? What about the, the person who is, like you said, cleaning the product after it's been used or that reprocessor? Those people are definitely end users as well. And there are definitely requirements that we need to be capturing as part of that. And I, I think by and large, we do a very, very, as an industry, I think we do a very poor job of doing that right now. And, and I don't think that we need additional regulations. I think we just, like you say, follow what's already in place. Just make sure we're actually capturing all of the design input requirements. Well, I would agree with you, John. And just picking up on that all design inputs theme, just a, a step further, how in your experience in working in devices that are designed to be reprocessed and reused, how many companies as part of their design inputs include reprocessability as an input. In other words, we're all very familiar with the concept of design for manufacturing. Well, a couple of years ago, and this is one of the many things I talked about at my FDA panel presentation, I sort of coined the, the phrase design for reprocessability. Yeah. In other words, if you have a device that is designed to be cleaned and reprocessed and reused, should not some of those design inputs include the reprocessability requirements? What do you think? I think absolutely. They they absolutely should. You know, the the, the thing that, that Mike that still blows my mind sometimes is I get asked questions about packaging and labeling. If they should even if a medical device company should capture design input requirements for how the product should be packaged and how it should be labeled. And you know, we're still struggling with packaging and labeling and making sure that those are captured from a design control perspective. So, you know, we still got a lot of work to do as an industry. We still need to do a much better job, but certainly of addressing packaging and labeling. But absolutely, if I know that my device is going to be used and then after the procedure, it needs to be reprocessed, there's all sorts of ramifications. I need to make sure that I, I define things like, well, how does it need to be reprocessed? What are the cleaning agents that are compatible what cleaning agents are not compatible? I mean, there might be something that that I'm going to use in the in the effort of clean and reprocess the device that could actually have a negative effect on that. And you know, if there are different nooks and crannies, which you know, that's as you read about the duodenoscopes, you know, you read there's a lot of stuff that's out there. Of course, you know how much of it's true or false. You know, I'll let I'll let you all draw your own conclusion. But there was some. Let's just say some of the things that I read indicated that there were some, you know, very hard to get to nooks and crannies within these products that uh, were really difficult to clean and require maybe some disassembly 
in order to properly do so. And, and that wasn't always happening. And chances are that wasn't very well defined as part of, of a requirement. Well, you're right, John. And again, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the labeling issue because one of the things now that companies are being asked to think about, and again, this is just, you know, basic engineering to me, everybody in your audience is familiar with the UDIs, you know, the unique device identifiers now that are becoming part of the labeling requirements. Well, in the new reprocessing guidance, as well as several of the other related guidances, now FDA is reminding everybody that we have to design our UDIs to be reprocessable as well. In other words, depending on how you actually attach that label, if you have a device that is designed to be reused X number of times, the label needs to be able to survive the ETO or the autoclave or the sterilization of, you know, whatever method. And so not only does the label have to be designed to withstand those requirements, but we also need some way to track the number of times that a device is reused, kind of like the odometer on your car that will tell you when you need an oil change. You know, these are, you know, basic things, but as an industry, you know, it's amazing sometimes how we have gotten to now 2016 and we're still just trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, you just said a couple of things and I want to dive a a little bit deeper on a couple of things. You asked me the question about do we need increased regulation and and then you reminded me in the audience that there is a a new reprocessing guidance document from the FDA. So I guess I'll a little tongue in cheek uh, flip it back at you. Isn't a new guidance document, isn't that really new regulation? Well, in a sense, I mean, technically speaking, as you know, uh, John is a, you know, is a, is a professional guidance is only guidance, but you know, I like to look at it as reminding people of what they should be doing. Ideally, they wouldn't need, you know, F- guidance from FDA, but, uh, you know, none of us are perfect. So I guess I try to look at it from a, a positive perspective in just reminding people and especially newer people to this industry that might not have the historical perspective that you and I have so that we do not continue to repeat the same mistakes over again. Right. Right. And, and I'm, I know you've uh, scoured and read every line of that guidance document inside and out. So it's a uh, great, it's a great cure for insomnia. If anybody (laughs) has any difficult sleeping. Well, I mean, yeah. And if, and if that guidance document doesn't do it, just there's a whole bunch of others that you can find. <laughs> Absolutely. And listen, one other thing that I would like to bring up here for you and your audience, because I would love to hear your thoughts on this, John. Obviously, the validation is part of any good design control professional's vocabulary. When it comes to reprocessing, and this is where the guidance, in my opinion, does not go far enough, it says that we need to have a validated reprocessing protocol, which makes sense. But the question becomes, who does that actual validation? In other words, should a medical device company who is not in the business of cleaning and reprocessing instruments, most of the time that's done in the hospital or perhaps by a a third-party company, should the medical device company be writing and validating that protocol? In my opinion, that makes no sense, even though that's what many people do. It should be validated in the hospital by whoever is going to be doing that that reprocessing. So from a, a validation perspective, John, what's your thoughts on who actually should be doing that validation? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you asked that because I kind of got at the, the second point that you reminded me of a few minutes ago. And, and it's, you know, the device company that's making the device to be reprocessed and reused, 
you know, they, what is their responsibility? And I guess really where you're getting at here. And, and so from a validation standpoint, I mean, I kind of look at it, you know, I, I know generically this, this is how I always kind of think about validation from a process perspective. And, you know, I'll, I'll use the acronyms IQ, OQ, PQ. And I think if we, you know, for the audience to understand, you know, I guess I'll give you a few words, installation qualification, operational qualification, performance qualification. I, I will say on that particular topic, there are a couple of guidance documents that you can you can review. Uh, if you search GHTF process validation, Global Harmonization Task Force process validation, they have a pretty good guidance document. I, I realize GHTF is no longer the entity. It's now IMDRF. But anyway, uh, segue here. <laughs> uh, I think that a device company cannot fully validate because un unless they, the device is coming back to them, after use and the device is being reprocessed by the company at their facility with their equipment, that's not, it's not pragmatic or even practical. You can't even validate the, the reprocessing if the actual cleaning and the, and the, and the, the reprocessing is happening at another facility. Cause a lot of times these things are being reprocessed and cleaned at the hospitals, right? That's exactly right, John. And taking that a half a step further, the, the question of who does the validation, as we both agree, it's it's important for the for whoever's going to be doing the the reprocessing, the hospital or the third party reprocessing company to actually do that validation. But what about the individual? I do not mean to be unkind or to be patronizing here, but the people that are actually doing the actual reprocessing work. These people are not exactly PhDs in engineering. Right. So, right. for example, when a company like some of the endoscope companies now have come out with a 160-page manual yeah, that's on how to reprocess their device and a 60 to 90-minute video on how to reprocess their device, with all due respect, is that realistic? If you go to Walmart and you buy a, a toaster and it comes with a 160-page manual, how many people are going to read that? So it comes down to the fundamental question, what good is the regulation and following the regulation right. or the guidance if it's not realistic? What do you yeah. think, John? Yeah, I mean, I as you described that, I mean, it, our industry is is classic at, at using IFUs and, and operator manuals and labeling and, and an attempt to be CYA. And if you don't know what CYA means, uh, you can Go look that up. Google it. <laughs> Google it, yeah. Uh, but I, but I, so. I think about the, like it, just the car. You mentioned the car example earlier. I mean, I, I know just because I have a car that every so often I have to go in and do some routine maintenance. I may have to change my oil is a great example. And I got a little sticker on my window. That's my label that reminds me of that, right? Or a little light that pops up on my dash that reminds me of that. I also have in my car uh, a manual for my vehicle. Now, I'm going to confess, folks, I've never read that manual from cover to cover. I only... I yeah, I don't even think I've opened the manual. John. <laughs> <laughs> I only get the manual out when there when there's like a a question about something that either pops up on my dash or or like I'm really trying to figure out something you know that and like it's been bothering me. I have to I scan it real quickly. But let's just say that manual is probably 160 pages and I've never read it. And I drive my car every single day, you know, and and. Yeah. And perhaps I should not say this in a podcast that's going to be going out to the rest of the world, but as a PhD in engineering myself, my philosophy is if I have to read the user manual for any product, yeah. then some engineer did not do their job. Right. Absolutely. So I think, I think 
you know, to for a company to come out and say, you know, here is our 160-page manual on how to reprocess our device and watch this video. I mean, I understand it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's a knee-jerk response. It's an attempt to try to mitigate the issues that have been you know, surfaced uh, on the topic. But that's not – you and I both know that that, that approach is, is going to be largely ineffective. It is. And listen, as we approach the end of this recording for today, I do think it's important to leave this on as positive a note and as a pragmatic of a note as we can. So maybe we can wrap this up by sharing with our audience some best practices or some suggestions, some some things to, to keep in mind. And, you know, one or two things that I would say is Obviously, the regulation is important. The guidance is important. We need to be familiar with all of that that is applicable to whatever devices that we're, that we're developing. But beyond that, consider the real world scenario, the real life scenario. How exactly is your device going to be used in the real world, not just by the physician or surgeon user, but as you said earlier, by the nurse, by the reprocessor, by whoever else is going to be in contact with your device. Think about things like, for example, if when it comes to labeling and your UDI, your UDI label needs to be able to survive the, the reprocessing environment. Think about coming up with some sort of a tracking system for a reusable device so that we know how many times that device has been reprocessed. Think about who should do the actual validation. Is it the people in the hospital? And if so, work with them directly. Get out into the hospital reprocessing center and actually ask them uh, for their suggestions on how to make the reprocessing easier. Bottom line, I think if we just simply keep in, uh, you know, keep thinking about how our devices are used in the real world, that will take us many steps in the direction of trying to minimize or perhaps even eliminate these kinds of problems in the future. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I guess a, a, a bit of a, a kind of a personal twist that I want you all to think about as well on this topic and frankly, any other topic that you're dealing with when it comes to medical device product development and, and manufacturing. And that's to remember a few things that about what you're doing. You're making medical devices that uh, are intended to save and improve the quality of life. And, and I think, you know, my, my personal twist on it is this. All of our family, uh, we have people in our lives who have all benefited from medical technologies and, and devices. And, you know, in my own personal situation, I have, you know, some family members who have gone through some some health concerns and issues, as I'm sure all of you have as well. You know, one example, my my parents are getting a little bit older and they're going through and and trying to pr prepare for their golden years of their lives and going through you know physicals and tests and all that sort of thing, as, as we all do as we get a little bit older. And, and sometimes, you know, things are discovered and there needs to be medical procedures that guess what require medical devices. And I personally, I want some assurance to know that everything that my parents, my family, my, my sister, my kids, my, you know, all of the people that I love and care about, I want, I want great assurance to know that the products, the medical devices that are going to be used on me and my family have been, are safe and effective and have been tested and, and reprocessed properly. And, and, and all of those things, we should all bring that back to what we're doing in the medical device industry and think about those things. 
Well, John, I could not agree, agree with you more to that last point. And let me just share one last thought with your audience as we wrap this up. As you mentioned in my introduction, I not only consult for a wide variety of medical device companies, but I also work for as a consultant for the FDA. So I see a lot of these issues from both sides. One of the most common questions that I get from people in medical device companies across the board, they say to me, Mike, you work with all these different companies as well as the FDA. If we come to the FDA with our new medical device, what do you think they're going to want to see in terms of safety, efficacy, performance, dot, dot, dot? And I often say to them something like this, look, I understand that's an important question to you and and why you're asking that question, but let's think about this a, a slightly different way. Sooner or later, a family member, a friend, perhaps even ourself is going to be on the receiving end of one of these devices. When that day occurs, what would we as individuals want to see in terms of safety, efficacy, performance, and so on to put sort of our personal stamp of endorsement, if you will, to say that this product is okay to use in my spouse, in my child, perhaps even in myself, then and only then should we go to FDA and have a discussion as to what needs to be done. This is something, this is the way that it used to work a long time ago when I first started out in this business almost 25 years ago, but it doesn't really happen as much as it does today. Yes, the regulation is important, whether we're talking about reprocessing design controls or anything else, but we have to take a bigger look. I view the the regulatory requirements, including the design controls, is just a starting point, not an ending point just sort of reminders of the things that we should be doing anyway, but it is by no means a, a complete or an exhaustive list. Yeah. So, so keeping in mind that we might be on the receiving end of one of our products is, you know, quite frankly, when you think about it, a, a humbling thought and it's an awesome responsibility. Yeah, that's, uh, that's well stated. Well, Mike, as always, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and thanks for finding time between your airport journeys to, to join us on the, today's episode. Well, thank you so much, John. I always enjoy our conversations and I appreciate the invitation to come back. And if there's anything that I can do to help anybody in the audience, feel free to contact me. Absolutely. You can find more about Mike Drews. The best place that I find that I learn all kinds of things about Mike Drews is, frankly, it's on LinkedIn. Look him up, Mike. Actually, you're going to look up Michael Drews, D-R-U-E-S, and he's with Vascular Sciences, and he consults with FDA. He consults with Health Canada. He consults with medical device companies as well. So send him a note. Let him know that you have a question, and I'm sure he's happy to, to help you solve all of the, your medical device woes and problems, or at least get you on the right path. This is John Spear, and I want to tell you a little bit about Greenlight.Guru. Greenlight.Guru is developing, or has actually developed, and and is in 12 countries all over the world at the time of this podcast in our software solution. Our software solution helps medical device companies manage and maintain their entire quality management system, as well as optimize workflows around capturing and managing design controls and an ISO 14971 compliant approach to risk management. So check us out. Go to Greenlight.Guru request a demo, learn more about our software solution. Last thing that I want to say is thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Tell your friends, we're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, and of course you can find it on greenlight.guru and you can find all episodes that Mike and I have been on on by following Mike and, and or myself on LinkedIn as well. This has been John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory, and this has been the Global Medical Device Podcast.